guys, welcome back to Salt Lime Storytime. I'm Jess and this is Allison and we hey. are so excited for today's <laughs> podcast. So, so excited. Could not tell you how thrilled we are to be recording today and talking about our pioneer ancestries. Your pioneer ancestries. Fair enough. <clears throat> Fair enough. Your your family was on the Mayflower, so you're like kind of original no, I'm pioneer vibe. Just as white as you, but just a different flavor. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we are so excited to talk about pioneers today. We are having our very first guest on the podcast. My dad, Corey Nani, will be making a small appearance to chat with us about some more nuanced details of Mormon history, but we'll get into that when he's on. Before we start, Allison, how are you? I am doing well, Jess. I it's, it was another kind of hard week, but for a very good reason. I got to go to a beautiful celebration of life in Ashland, Oregon, which I'd never been to, and it was stunning. And it was a very beautiful service. And I am very happy I got to go. And I got to be around a lot of amazing, beautiful, fun people. Uh, got drunk on the floor of a motel room and slept there. It was great. There were supposed to be two people in it. There were six of us. So yeah, me and my friend spooned under the counter in the bathroom. (laughs) 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 Only place. Uh, It was great. Had a lot of good talk and fun memories were shared and spent great time with a lot of really great people. So that's me, Jess. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. We are enjoying some very chaotic weather here in Utah. It was 70 today, but it snowed over the weekend, so we're in my favorite part of spring where the weather literally can't get its shit together. I got to take my little brother's senior pictures this weekend, which was really, really fun. He graduates next month, and we went to In-N-Out and did an In-N-Out photo shoot because he loves In-N-Out, and it was a delight. We had so much fun. He really wanted to just kind of be a little bit more tongue-in-cheek because he's a COVID high schooler, so, you know he COVID happened his junior year of high school. He really like had a crappy, crappy last two years of high school. So he was just like, I just want to have fun. I want to be light and fun with it. This is the same brother that killed the bird for those listening in. Blaine, shout out. Um, Bird killer. Bundy. In and out lover. So (laughs) it was really fun though. Uh, Jess, would you like to tell our podcast about what you chose for this week and why you chose it? So what I chose this week, and as we've been teasing the last couple of episodes, we are talking about pioneers, both Mormon and non-Mormon pioneers, but I am stoked because I have a lot of fond and traumatizing memories of (laughs) doing the basically cosplay week of the trek that I went on when I was 14 where we went and pulled hand carts and did the whole thing. So I'm super excited to kind of talk about this with Allison because this is something that she fortunately or unfortunately never got to experience as a teenager in Utah. Fortunately, I would say. A great time. Can you real fast just explain a bit bit more detail, unless you're planning on doing this later, what Trek is and how long it takes how miserable it was so I'll give you I'm gonna talk about it as I tell my story because part of my story happens where I did trek so I've literally been to and done basically a LARPing week at the place doing the things that happened in my story 
Like I've gone and done basically a civil war reenactment of these. <laughs> and they were forced so. to do this with their church, by the way. Like, yes, the amount of, cause like I never church had to go to Trek because I was never, you know, grew up Mormon, but the amount of times my friends were like, Oh yeah, we had Trek. I fucking hate, well, I freaking, or I fudging or they said they wouldn't say that. Cause that's still too close to the effort. It's like, I stinking hate it. I, I hate, I, I just hate camping. Yeah. It's literally cosplaying pioneers it's great for days right for days i was there for five six days hey editing jess here we are about to hear from my wonderful father who is going to give us a great rundown of what happened that made the mormons decide to become pioneers and move west but just for some clarity's sake i'm going to give you all a quick rundown of um, the kind of Mormon timeline of how they moved westward through the United States. So first off, Joseph Smith is from New York. He, all of like the first vision, all of that, his first congregation all happened in and around the New York area. Um, eventually after they had kind of started developing more of their rhetoric and everything, they were run out of New York, um, and forced to flee to northern Ohio near Cleveland and settle what is now called Kirkland, Ohio. They also sent a group of Mormons down to Missouri to also settle a township there. So my dad is referencing them living in Ohio and Missouri. That's happening simultaneously. Eventually, they are also kicked out of Kirkland and are forced to move to Illinois to what they then call Nauvoo. And that is kind of like another really big settlement that they make. Uh, through the course of a lot of other things that you can go and research on your own. Joseph Smith is um, ultimately arrested and then assassinated along with his brother Hiram Smith. And that is ultimately what leads to a lot of the stuff that my dad is about to talk to or talk about in um, what leads everybody to come west. So hopefully that helps a little bit. And if you need to look at a map, um, thehistoryofmormonism.com has some great resources. All right, now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Anyway, let's, without further ado, should we call Corey Nani? Let's call my dad into the pod. Hi, dad. Oh, the man, the myth, the legend. Hi, Corey. Hi, oh. How's we it are going? So good. We are live like- on the pod. <laughs> oh, also, we're birthday twins. It doesn't matter, but I just remembered. Happy February 19th. That's not today, but Corey. When, the next time it comes around, I will, I'll, I'll make sure to remember to, uh, Raise a Diet Coke yeah. in your honor. Great. So do you Great. claim Pisces or Aquarius? Because we're allowed um, to pick. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, guys, he gets it. So I actually grew up my entire life being told that I was Aquarius because that's what it said in my local newspaper. And it wasn't until I was like 18 years old that my friend who was very into astrology was like, oh, my gosh, what's your sign? And I told her my birthday. And she's like, oh, so you're a Pisces. And I was like, no, I'm an Aquarius. And she's like, no, you're a Pisces. And I was like, I'm an Aquarius. And she was we got in like a fight. And then I looked it up and it turns out I am officially a Pisces. I had a whole identity crisis about it. But after dating several Aquarius, I am happy not to be one. And I would much rather be a Pisces and in tune with my emotions instead of locking them away in a tower somewhere. So I would like to say that I am a Pisces. <laughs> How do you identify, Corey? I, I pick Pisces as well. It, it, but to be fair, the nice thing with being with being on a cutoff date like that is depending on which newspaper you read will dictate which horoscope you get to pick. For exactly. That's why it's so fun. It, it can like tells you you're Aquarius or a Pisces. That's why I was always so confused. Good for us. We're special. Yep. Very special. I love it. All right. I love anyway, it. Jess. 
Well, Dad, welcome to Salt Lamp Storytime. You are our very first guest, so congratulations on Which being our inaugural guest speaker. Uh, to give everybody kind of a background, my dad has a BA in U.S. History, a Master of Arts in Mormon Studies specializing in Restoration Theology and Territorial Utah History. So when it comes to some pioneer stuff, my dad has, knows a thing or two. Most well, heavy, heavy emphasis on only a couple of things, but yeah. <laughs> well, you definitely know more than Allison and I, 100%. So, Dad, we have brought you on to ask you to kind of give us a rundown, particularly pertaining to the Mormon pioneers, how Mormon pioneering even came to be. What led the Mormons to decide, you know what, we're going to pack up and walk across these plains and settle in a not very hospitable valley several hundred thousand miles away. <laughs> yeah, something like something like 1,300 miles or 2,200 miles or depending on where they started. Well, so look, I think context matters. So the thing to keep in mind is where the Mormon exodus started in Nauvoo was not the first place that the Mormons had actually left and, and kind of resettled. They started in New York, they were in Ohio, they were in Missouri, they were in Nauvoo. And each of the places they settled uh, over time became increasingly hostile. And remember that the Missouri years ended with an extermination order that the governor of Missouri had signed that said Missourians are allowed to kill Mormons on site. Um, an extermination order that, as far as I know, only 17 Mormons were actually killed under, but the extermination order stood until 1976, if you can believe it. So before they got to Nauvoo, this was sort of the experience they had most recently had. And now they get to Nauvoo and they're having some of the same problems. Now, you know, I. I as a historian, you don't ever want to try to justify bad actors' behaviors, but you also want to at least understand what they might have been thinking through their own lens. So just like in Ohio and just like in Missouri, the local Illinois residents had reason for concern because you had a group of people moving in and buying stuff up and establishing farms and communities, et cetera, and voting in a political block. Um, so all of a sudden, the sort of liberal republicanism that dominated the Protestant era of the time was a little bit under, uh, under siege by more of a uh, communal republicanism with this sort of insular religious ma uh, majority. It wasn't a majority at the time, but they were seen as this increasing majority moving across the across the river into Illinois. So they already had this little bit of hostility, not to mention Illinois was not a slave state and Missouri was. While they were in Missouri, the Missourians were frustrated at the Mormons for being abolitionists just because they weren't vocal supporters of slavery. They came from the Northeast. Uh, many of them did have abolitionist attitudes, but largely the Mormons were kind of silent at least as an official matter on, on slavery. And then you move to Illinois and the native residents begin thinking, oh, here's all these slavers coming over from Missouri. So they, you know, kind of couldn't, couldn't win for losing on that particular 
uh, ideological battle. But of course, the biggest thing that marks that period of Mormonism is polygamy. At this point, it's in full swing, particularly in the Nauvoo years is sort of where it really begins to pick up in, you know, 1841, 1842. Um, and that's, that's obviously really weird to what, to, to what most other major American religious groups are, are into. So you combine all of these things with, from the Mormons' perspective, they're living out an existential crisis basically everywhere they go. They're skeptical of their neighbors. They're concerned about their, their longevity as not only individuals, but as people. And so they tend to sort of huddle together and support each other in, in, in these communities, all the while striking out doing, you know, religious proselytizing in the, in the, in the form of uh, missionary work. Okay, fine. But on the flip side, you've got the non-Mormon residents that are concerned about their political power, that are concerned about their peculiar behaviors with polygamy, that are concerned about their political ideologies, namely, are these guys pro-slavery? They just came from Missouri. And then you get Joseph Smith running for president in 1844, and he runs on really a very libertarian kind of uh, kind of philosophy, but he's without equivocation, he's anti-slavery. And so that sort of does some things to assuage some of their concerns, but is also still very, very pro polygamy. And, and even so far as the reason that sort of animated him to run for president, of course, was he had gone to state governors trying to seek protection for their religious liberty and uh, that took him all the way to the president of the United States, and they got no real audience, no consideration or, or legal protection for what they observed as religious liberty in their form, polygamy. They viewed it as a religious ceremony, not a legal one. So he decides to run for president, and that's going to be one of the things is that states get to dictate their own things. Well, you combine all of this, and in 1844, he gets himself shot. He and his brother are killed. Now, this leaves a bit of an interesting power vacuum in a couple of ways. At the time, there was no real clear plan for the succession of the church authority. Joseph Smith was the prophet, and everybody acknowledged him as the prophet because they believed his story that God had handpicked him, that God had called him. He went into, the, he went into a sacred grove. He prayed about it. God and Jesus Christ presented themselves to him and and over the course of year, course of the next few years, effectively said, we have a work for you to do. You're going to bring about the restoration of our gospel. And so the people who had followed him up to this point, this is what they believed about him. Now, what happens when he's unexpectedly gone? Who takes over for him? Who, who has God picked? And so there was this power vacuum in the sense of, we call it the, the, the succession crisis, where... Was it, gonna, was, it a, was it a bloodline thing? Was it going to be his sons that took over? Or there was his closest council of the Quorum of the Twelve, his counselors, led by the time by Brigham Young. He was the, he was the most senior of those, of those apostles. So was it going to be a seniority thing? And, and Brigham Young actually sort of establishes this idea of blood by proxy, which, which says that we're all blood brothers and sisters of the spirit. So while it, while ultimately it becomes a matter of seniority, it's also by blood because Brigham Young is related by blood to Joseph Smith 
through the tribes of Israel, who they perceive as being sort of their spiritual birthrights, I guess is a, is a simplified way to say it, right? So on the one hand, you've got that. Over the next couple of years, from the time Joseph Smith is murdered to the time the Mormons are getting ready to leave, and by this time, we're, when we say Mormons, we're talking about the Brigham Young Mormons, because the succession crisis leads to a split in the church. The LDS, which moved to Salt Lake, and then what became the RLDS, which stayed there in Illinois, and they're now known as the um, Community of Christ. But ultimately, the vast majority of the church acknowledges Brigham Young's claim to the prophetic mantle and believe that he's the rightful successor to Joseph Smith in terms of church leadership. But where does that leave them with all the stuff that Joseph Smith owned? He bought a huge amount of property in Nauvoo. The, the, the temple was built on it. He had homesteads that he would rent out. He had the entire city blocks that he would sell. I mean, this Nauvoo was supposed to be this you know, central gathering place for, for Mormons from all over the world. And he had intended to have all of that ready to go. And while a lot of it had been sold, he still owned a bunch of it and had deeded it to his wife, Emma. Well, so then you've got this legal battle over who owns what. Does the church own everything that Joseph Smith owned because he was the prophet of the church and that was all technically church assets? Or does Emma own it because she was his wife and he had deeded it to her? This went back and forth for quite a while, for a couple of years, but ultimately Emma ended up with most of the property. She also ended up with all of the debt. He, he was not, I don't think anybody would ever claim that Joseph Smith was a savvy business person. There's, a, there's handfuls of examples of his business and financial endeavors not panning out but Allison, so for for reference sorry dad i don't want to interrupt you but um emma smith is joseph smith's first wife and she ultimately smart smart uh, smart 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 no, self-park um, reference i'm sorry yeah, yeah. <laughs> i know who she is um, from that i'm very sorry about that yeah no I, <laughs> that's I know not that appropriate um <laughs> but she ended up not going with them uh, because she never acknowledged Brigham Young as the next prophet, right? Wasn't that part of it, Dad? Yeah, so that's kind of where the split happens. She doesn't acknowledge that Brigham Young should be prophet. She believes that it should be his sons, but that his sons are not of age yet anyway. And she also firmly believed that Brigham Young was the one who convinced Joseph Smith to do polygamy. And she was staunchly opposed to polygamy. So that's the third kind of rail of this, is you not only have the property disputes, you have the leadership of the church disputes, and you still have polygamy. And there's a, there's a large fraction of the church that still believes in celestial marriage, as they called it, the, the, the divine institution of, of spiritual wifery, and that's going to maintain under Brigham Young. And then you have a smaller faction under thinking of Emma Smith specifically in this sort of dichotomy of, you know, these two, uh, uh, Linda Newell calls it the lion and the lady, battling over uh, uh, over some of this stuff and she's not going for it so all of a sudden the mormon church under brigham young finds themselves it's becoming an increasingly hostile place for the mormons to stay the sentiment that led to joseph smith's murder had not abated mormons in nauvoo were afraid to go out at night there was there's stories of you know roving bands of marauders breaking into houses. There's a story of people are still on edge. There's a story of a guy who uh, shot his own wife in the night because she he thought she was an intruder in their own home. Because um, this is the kind of stuff that's, that's still going on in Nauvoo. So most of the Mormon faithful, by which I mean faithful to Brigham Young, had moved across the river and were camped out in winter quarters, uh, kind of on the uh, on the border with uh, with Nebraska. 
so you've got this sort of uh, combination of elements where the Mormon faithful are are not safe in Nauvoo. They don't really have a place to be anyway. Most of their land doesn't belong to us. At least the church's land doesn't belong to them anymore. They don't recognize the leadership of the people who own the property. They recognize the leadership of, of Brigham Young. And then you throw all of this that uh, Illinois had finally banned polygamy as a legal matter. It was illegal to practice polygamy in the state of Illinois. And as a matter of fact, it was illegal. It was going to be illegal coming very soon to practice polygamy anywhere in the United States. And this was becoming increasingly clear. They realized that America is hostile to them, them meaning the faithful Mormons. Brigham Young uh, and, and his Quorum of the Twelve say, this is not the place for us. We're going to go west. We're going to leave the United States. And keep in mind, this is going to be 1846. The big context here, what led them to leave, all of those things I've just explained, this whole combination of elements that got us to 1846. But the really important message to remember here is that these Mormon pioneers were not just going off into the desert for who knows what. They were planning on God leading them. They had every intention of leaving the United States. They got to the Salt Lake Valley for a reason because Denver at the time was kind of the last frontier of the American West. I mean, you had, you know, the Oregon Trail and stuff. So you had the Louisiana Purchase that sort of went up to the Northwest, but they were skipping all of that. They were going to the Southwest. They were intentionally leaving the United States where they thought they could have their own personal interpretation of this communal republicanism, this, this theocracy under which they could determine their own, their own ways, their own, their own rules, live their own lives which is why I've always thought this Mormon exodus is one of the most fascinating elements in, in U.S. history because it so interestingly mirrors the early pilgrim story. I mean, this, this was not that dissimilar from what some of the early pilgrims in the, in the uh, 1600s were trying to do. They wanted to practice their religion freely too. Um, and so they went to the colonies where they thought they could do that freely without so much controlled by the crown. And, and now you have the Mormons doing the same thing. We're getting out of here. We're going to Mexico where they won't bother us. Okay, I have a few questions. One, no offense, Utah, but what did Brigham Young see in Utah to be like, this is the place? Because wasn't it just like sage and dirt and rattlesnakes and a literal salt lake? <laughs> um yeah so there's there's funny stories about why he chose to stop here like it seems Um, like the worst place to want to stop look it 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 sort of depends on whose interpretation you want you you want to follow when they set out from Nauvoo the reason that people did this over the course of the next handful of years and went through some of the horrors that they did as I'm sure you guys have read some of the stories of subsequent pioneer uh, uh, treks that came across the Great Plains, they believed that God had led them to that place and God as dictated by Brigham Young. So when he said, this is the place, they would have interpreted that as this is God telling them this is where to be. You know, despite this, despite appearances, or at least in our sort of modern consciousness, um, yeah, it's a desert, but it was it was perceived as a reasonably fertile valley at the time as compared to what they were, what, what they had just been through. It would have been one of the first appealing places to stop after coming through the mountains. 
more so than say the watch the uh, the the Great Basin on the other side of the Wasatch Mountains. Of course, my favorite story is that Mormon publisher W.W. Phelps had this massive printing press and a, and a massive uh, bookbinding machine. And one of the things this machine would do is it has the, it's like a six foot long blade and it could cut through thousands of sheets of paper. But the machine weighed over a ton. Well, they put that thing on the back of a handcart and carted it across the Great Plains. And so the store, and, it, and it's still there. The, the church still has it. It's in the church history library. It's, it's been restored and maintained, and it's still in use today at the church history library. And it's a beautiful machine. I've seen it. But the story goes that they got to the Salt Lake Valley, and somebody said, I am not carrying this damn thing one step further. And Brigham Young said, okay, drop it here. This is the place. Yeah, they were like, we're done at this point. This seems yeah. great. That's my most favorite story. But I think it's a little bit of a combination of all of the above. Wow. Thank you for telling us all of that. That's an incredible story. I didn't really, I I knew most of that, but I didn't really know, you know, the details of a lot of it. So I appreciate you clearing up a lot of that information. South Park didn't cover all of that? Um, They covered a lot of it. (laughs) And I know it's actually very accurate, but it's a little satirical. So I I don't want to offend anybody. But when I think of the Mormon church and like, when I explain it to other people for the first time, I actually just show them that episode. It, it is it is worth a chuckle. And it is a surprisingly, despite its tongue in cheek and even irreverent character, it is surprisingly uh, accurate in terms of timeline. So. I love it too. And I love it when, because the, the way that they, they depict the family in it too is so perfect where they're all like perfect, smart, blonde haired, like, little individuals and they answer the door and she's like I'm making rice crispy squares like blah 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 and it's just and they are all like really good at instruments and I don't know it's just really funny and relatable so if you guys haven't seen that episode I recommend watching it yeah well thank you dad that was very very informative well look I think the one thing that bears repeating uh, I think is what I said before is whenever you're doing historical inquiry we can't look at it through the lens of today Um, I mean the things that we believe 10 years ago are out of style today let alone 200 years ago. So whenever you're talking about these things, it's always worth giving the people the benefit of at least trying to understand through their eyes. Doesn't mean we agree or condone. It just means we're trying to understand. Well, thank you, Dad, for coming on the pod. And we are so excited to have you as our first guest. And if you'd like to find my dad on the internet, he's on LinkedIn at Corey Nani. He might not connect with you, but you're welcome to try. To piggyback off what my father said, we are going to get into one of the most classic LDS pioneer stories ever. Like if you grew up in Mormon, in the Mormon culture, particularly in Utah, you were literally breastfed this information from a young age. (laughs) Did you not like that analogy? No, it it was just very graphic. (laughs) So Allison. We're going to get into it. Are you ready? I am, but I just real fast, both, I know both Jess and I want to preface this with saying that we know that white settlers really fucked over Native Americans and we are not condoning their treatment of Native Americans, nor are we trying to overshadow their struggles with these, you know, quote unquote, heroic stories of pioneers, because we know that a lot of the issues and the turmoil caused were because of the white settlers. And I know we just wanted to say that we are in support of the Native Americans and we don't want 
people to think otherwise. And like with any manifest destiny story, pioneers, gold diggers, etc. All of this history has been whitewashed. Um, one of the things that my dad studied a lot of in college and in his master's degree was the whitewashing of Mormon history specifically and like how the church kind of hid they hid a lot of their history and he talked about we when I was on the phone with him initially asking him to come on and do this we were talking about the uh, Mountain Meadows massacre and he talked about how they for a long long time part of it was like pinning that massacre on the Indians either on the Native Americans I should say mm-hmm. because it was the easier thing to swallow where in reality it was a Mormon faction that had done it against Brigham Young's will and like all this stuff and if you want to read some crazy fucked up shit the Mountain Meadow massacre is some insane insane history uh it's too dark to do on a podcast so I won't be doing that but very interesting in Utah history particularly in Cedar City and is a great example of poor scholarship so that being said (laughs) let's do it Allison what do you know about the Willie and Martin handcar companies? Absolutely nothing either than the fact that they did things very difficultly. They pulled they pulled a cart instead of used horses or oxen and exactly. they did it for like thousands of miles. Seems bad. Yeah. Okay, so the William Martin handcar companies were entirely comprised of English Mormon converts that had come over from Europe, specifically England, in the Liverpool area, all that jazz. So the majority of these companies did not have like Americans in their number. So absolutely no familiarity with the land. But before we even get into that, we are going to recite my sources because I always forget until Allison's halfway through her story. I read the Wikipedia article on the William Martin Handcar Companies, which was actually a really great article, good for Wikipedia, a article from the Denver Post called Handcar Hypocrisy, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.org article on Patience Loader from 1872. My father's journal edit of the pioneer woman, Patient Loader Archer, that later I believe appeared in Archer, Patient Loader, Rosas, Reminiscence in Our Old Pioneer Heritage, Volume 20, 1958 to 77. Don't ask me why that's the title. That's just what it says on the internet. I would like to apologize for my groan when you said LDS.org. I'm sorry. (laughs) And I also used the BYU Historical Archives. My story is titled The Martin Handcart Company and the Harrowing Story of Patience Loader Archer. So like my dad, so beautifully depicted for us after the first LDS settlers or colonizers, depending on how we like to swing it, began to settle in the Salt Lake Valley, they turned their attention across the pond and continued to encourage their European converts to emigrate to Utah. They finally had this place where they felt like they were safe and they were like, all right, you've converted over there. It's time to come over here. Cause like my dad mentioned, there was a lot of missionary efforts happening at the time, but they really wanted to be in kind of this Zion place. Part of Utah, the Utah migration was that the Lord had promised a Zion. Brigham Young had found them a Zion. 
So from 1849 to 1855, they estimate that about 1,600 European saints traveled to the U.S. by ship and then on to Utah, either by rail when the railroad was finally built, oxen, wagons, and most notably, handcarts. Despite kind of the popular rhetoric in Utah, only about 3,000 people traveled using handcarts. Most of them did the easier route of using oxen or later on traveling by rail. Brigham Young was the first one to really encourage the use of handcarts starting in about 1855 after there were some poor harvests in Utah and it depleted their immigration funds. So the church was trying to help these people come over. They had a really bad harvest and didn't have the money to continue to help them, kind of like how my dad mentioned. A lot of their assets were taken on by Emma and that group and all this stuff. So the church ran out of money and couldn't pay for these people. So handcarts allowed poor people to come over and pay about a third less to travel across the plains. If done correctly, it was estimated that the handcart companies could travel faster than the wagon companies, meaning less food supplies needed and less cost overall because they just get there quicker. According to Wikipedia, and I quote, the handcarts resembled a large wheelbarrow with two wheels. They were five feet in diameter and a single axle, four and a half feet wide and weighing about 60 pounds. Running along each side of the bed were seven foot pole shafts ending with three foot crossbars at the front. The crossbars allowed the carts to be pushed or pulled. Cargo was carried in a box about three feet by four feet with eight inch walls high. The handcarts generally carried up to about 250 pounds of supplies and luggage, though they were capable of handling loads as heavy as 500 pounds. Carts used in the first year's migration were made entirely out of wood, but in later years, a stronger design was substituted, which included metal elements. They go on to say five people were assigned per handcart, with each individual limited to about 17 pounds of clothing and bedding. Each round tent, supported by a center pole, housed about 20 occupants and was supervised by a tent cabin. Provisions for each group of 100 emigrants were carried in one of the few ox wagons that would travel with these groups, and they were distributed by these tent cabins. End quote. So one of the most notable handcart companies to kind of make this journey was the William Martin Handcart Company. Their trek across the plains has been labeled by historians as a true and completely avoidable tragedy. Of the 980 members who began the journey, 250 members died on the trail, and many, many more had lifelong ailments after their journey. I think the easiest way before we really get into the nitty gritty is to kind of run through a quick timeline of how this journey went. Start to finish. They leave England in May. They arrive in the United States in June. They arrive to the launch off point in August. They finally leave at the very end of August. And then they travel through the late stages of fall, early winter to get to Utah and do not arrive till almost December. Um, Not to brag, but I made the drive from Utah to Omaha, Nebraska to an Airbnb in about 12 hours or less, maybe 10. So, I mean, probably just could have tried harder. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Sorry. We're not even Um, even into this yet. I know. I'm so horrified. I just. All right. So keeping that timeline in mind. The other thing that we're going to do with this, my dad did research on a specific woman who was in this group, and we're going to bring in some of her primary quotes talking about this as we go through. So getting back into this, as I was researching and deciding what to do, I reached out to my dad, shout out Corey, and found out that he had had the opportunity while he was in college to edit one of the journals of a member of the Martin Company. 
Patience Loader Archer. I wanted to put as much firsthand experience into the story as I could. So I will be intermixing her firsthand accounts as I tell the story, as it was translated by my dad. Translating meaning that she was fairly illiterate. And so he went through her journals and was able to piece together spellings and grammatical stuff to make it a little bit more cohesive. So, but it is as true to her as it could possibly be while retaining comprehension. All right. The Martin Company started its journey off on the wrong foot from the very beginning. In 1856, three other handcart companies had already made the journey successfully over the course of the summer. The companies had left in late spring and were able to make it to the Salt Lake Valley by late September. The Martin Company, however, was comprised of emigrants who left on a delayed ship from England on May 4th when they should have been leaving Iowa and Nebraska for Salt Lake. Once this group had arrived in Iowa City, which was where they would get supplies for these companies, the church's agents were completely overwhelmed. They hadn't prepared for the additional groups and were forced to scramble supplies together to outfit the companies. They had to use green wood for these extra hand carts and could not stock as much food as was needed to make the long few months that the journey was going to take. When the company began their journey and reached Florence, Nebraska, which is their final launching place, They lost several more weeks because they were forced to make repairs to these wagons. The use of green wood, particularly going into cold weather, meant that the wood snapped a lot. It shrunk. There was like a lot of wood issues and they had no metal on these, keeping that in mind. So one of the company members, John Chislett, describes the car issues by saying the axles and boxes being of wood and being ground out by the dust that found its way there in spite of our efforts to keep it out together with the extra weight put on the carts had the effect of breaking the axles at the shoulder. All kinds of expedients were restored to as remedies for the growing evil, but with variable success. Some wrapped their axles with leather obtained from bootlegs, others with tin obtained by sacrificing tin plates, kettles, or buckets from their mess outfits. Besides these inconveniences, there was felt a great lack of proper lubricator. Of anything suitable for this purpose, we had none at all, end quote. By this point, it was late summer and the company was super behind on its launch date. You'd think at this point they would choose to stay in winter in Florence or return to a more populated place to wait the winter out. And in fact, many people did do this, but they were considered less faithful for not trusting their faith to God in an effort to get to Zion more quickly. The group did meet all together before departing their last stronghold, Florence, Nebraska, but because most of the groups were immigrants and unfamiliar with the train they would be crossing, they left the choice up to the returning missionaries who had made this journey before. And these were the people that had converted them, they knew them, and they fully trusted them to know what was best for them. And again, these guys are all trusting in a God. So like, they think that whatever these men say is going to be fine. A notable figure in pioneer history, Levi Savage, played by one Jason Wade in 17 Miracles, who was also in the Cokeville Miracle and several other high-budget LDS faith mm-hmm. movies. Shout out Allison's Cokeville Miracle, if you Very didn't listen episode. to that episode. Levi Savage pleaded with the group to winter in Nebraska. He knew the perils the group would face should they leave, especially considering the majority of the people in their company were elderly women and children and many without husbands or brothers on the journey. Because a lot of times the men would leave first 
go do this journey and then send for their wives when they made the money. Like a lot of these women were traveling with their young children and no husband, no brother, no nothing. So unfortunately, all of the other leaders in the group argued otherwise and cited that divine intervention would be their protector. Ultimately, the Willie Hancock Company left Florence on August 17th and the Martin Company, which Patience was in, left on August 27th. Among the Martin's company number was Patience Loder Loder Archer. Patience and her family came from the Liverpool area in England, and she was one of the 1,600 English transplants to cross the plains in the name of God. Like the company itself, her family experienced hardship after hardship as they traveled. Before even arriving in Florence, the launching place, her father experienced intent foot issues from all the walking, because they also, keep in mind, they had to get from New York to Iowa, and then from Iowa to Florence. So these people are just walking, like there's no ending inside. And they're not in like Nikes, they're in leather boots. And a lot of these people are poor. So they're in leather boots that have either been given to them or like their hand-me-downs or they're confined. So like, and even then a lot of them didn't even have shoes. So like not great footwear. So her father was experiencing intense foot issues and was struck ill even before they had left on like the hard part of their journey. He received a blessing from the brethren in the Florence clamp and attempted to continue to help patients and her family pull the handcart as the company finally left Florence. Patients recalls the experience in her journal saying, and I quote, I told him, him being as her father, you are not able to pull the cart. You had better not try to pull. We can do it this afternoon. But he said, I can do it. I will try it again and must not give up. The brethren said, I shall be better. And I want to go to the valley to shake hands with Brigham Young. So we started on, but we had not traveled far before he fell down again. He was so weak and worn down. We got him up again, but we told him that he could not pull the cart anymore that day. So my sister Maria came and worked with me inside the shafts while Jane and Sarah pulled on the rope until we got into camp. That night, my sister Zilpha was confined, meaning she had her baby, at 12 o'clock And my other sister, Tamar, was very sick with mountain fever, which they think was like a form of tick Lyme disease. She got over it quite well, but another poor sister, Sarah Ann Barlow Ashton, died that night as soon as her child was born, leaving behind the newborn babe, three other children, and her husband, end quote. Following this harrowing night, one of the company leaders came to inform the Loder family they would need to continue on that morning despite their family's frailty if they wanted to stay with the group. Because patient's sister had just given birth, another was ill, and her father literally couldn't walk, the family elected to stay behind for a few days to recover, which is really dangerous, and we'll get into that in a second. Patience recounts the days it took them to catch up to the group after the recovery time, saying, and I quote, we were left there all alone as the company started about seven o'clock that morning. We stayed there all day with our sick. And when night came, my father and brother-in-law had to make a big fire to keep the wolves away from us. I never heard such terrible howling in my life as we experienced that loathsome night. We were very glad for the daylight, end quote. After a visit from a Florence scout who gave them some meager supplies to help them recover, Patience and her family packed her father, sister, and the newborn baby into a handcart to continue their catch-up attempt. In the area they were in, there was a multitude of dangers a small, vulnerable group like hers could run into. As she mentioned in her journal, there were wolves and all sorts of animals interested in the meats and supplies that they had, as well as, frankly, their human flesh. The Native American tribes in the area were also a present threat to them as they were worked to protect their tribes from these colonizers that were bringing their tribes illness and also murder to their own tribes. Understandable. Um, so I will preface this next quote from patients saying that she does reference the violence of the Native American tribes to her handcart company. And like we said, 
just keeping in mind that these people are invading these Native American tribes' lands for context of what this experience was. So Patience continues on in her journal saying, and I quote, it was not safe on account of the Indians for a man to travel alone. Brother Clough had not been gone very long when five great Indians came out of a cave in the mountains, got on their horses and came to meet us. They were all painted and naked except for a brick cloth and had tomahawks and hatches, bows and arrows. They stopped us in the road and talked with us, but we could not understand them. When they saw our sick and my sister with her newborn babe, they moved out of the road and motioned for us to go on. I think this is as close to have been killed by Indians as I ever wish to come. She continues on saying at the same time, we put our faith and trust in God, our father, that he would take care of us and not let them do us harm. I know that it was nothing but the power of God that saved us from them that day, all alone as we were traveling in the mountains and hills. After they left us, we traveled on for an hour or more. We came to a place where some folks had camped, the fire still burning, and we thought it might be where our company had camped. We did not know then, but it was the Indians who had been camping there. We stopped, had dinner there. I warmed some gruel for my sick sister, and after dinner, we thought we would take a little walk while father and mother rested. We had not gone far from the camp when we came upon four or five newly made graves. We picked up a green sunbonnet, which we recognized as Sister Williams, who left with Mr. Babbitt three days before we left camp at Cutler's Park. Mr. Babbitt had come out from Salt Lake to the States to purchase goods. He had a train of some five or six loaded wagons with teams and teamsters. He came into our camp and said that if we had any letters to send to Salt Lake, he would take them for us since he would get there long before we would. He also said he would take two people along with him free of charge as he had plenty of room in his light spring wagon. Sister Williams' husband had already gone to Utah the year before, and she had a young baby. She told Mr. Babbitt that she would like to go with him. He waited in camp until morning, and many wrote letters for him to take to their friends in Utah. The poor dear woman never dreamed of the sad fate that awaited her and Mr. Babbitt and his men. At this very place we stopped to camp for dinner, they were murdered by the Indians. We saw where the wagons had been burned and there were wagon wheels lying around near the graves. There was only one teamster left to tell the sad news. He said that Mr. Babette was shot in the wagon. The woman's sister Williams was put on a horse by the Indians and taken away. He did not know what became of her child. We left this camp and traveled in pursuit of our company. We traveled quietly. The night began to draw in on us and we were getting tired of pulling our loaded carts. My poor dear father was feeling sick and weak and tired as were my two dear sisters. I will never forget the terrible lonely night. For miles, we were surrounded by prairie fires. It looked as though the fires were getting so near us on both sides that we would be overtaken before we could find the company. But we traveled on under the shining moon that was in our favor, end quote. So- God. Like, so they came across the graves of their dead friends. Yes, literally. Like three days before, they had all sat in this company and like written letters for their loved ones that were already in Salt Lake. And these two women were able to oh go with God. this man. And then they came across and literally like found. And and I think that Patience is like 18 or 19 at this time. She's got young kids in her troop. Like, it's just so so harrowing um, i'm also shocked that they would want to go on a walk like that's I a would... really good point thank <laughs> you because that's the first thing i wanted to just like scoff i was just are you kidding me they want to go on a walk after they walked for a bajillion miles and they have a chance to sit down next to the fire anyway i i, I we know. can't ask them but i was my ass would be on the ground seriously <laughs> seriously 
in our last day's travel to find the company. And we traveled about two or three miles before we came upon the company's camp. The moon was shining. And when we first saw their tents, we rejoiced and felt we were not alone anymore. We were feeling very lonesome all day since we did not know the road. As we came near the camp, the guard yelled out, who goes there? We answered friends and told him who we were. He said, you cannot make a fire or put your t- up your tent tonight. No fire or lights are allowed. Everything has to be very quiet and we will have to move on early in the morning. End quote. Shortly after this moment that Patience recalls in her journal, her father finally succumbed to his injuries and illness and died on the 24th of September, 1856, which left her family to travel alone with three small children, four young, ill women, and a single man to manage the journey as they went on. And also keep in mind, her father died, let's see, September 24th. They will not arrive in the Salt Lake Valley until November 30th. Is she with her mother? Yeah, her mom. So in her camp, from what I could understand, her mother, her two sisters, herself, her brother-in-law, and then I couldn't ascertain the number of children, but I want to say three, including the literal newborn baby that's been alive for like three seconds. Heard. Unfortunately, surprise, surprise, nothing got better from here. So as they were kind of nearing the edge of Nebraska, a herd of bison caused the company that was slightly ahead of the Martin Hand Company, the Willie Handcart Company, it caused all of their cattle to stampede and they lost nearly 30 cattle, which when you think about how much meat is on a, a head of cattle, that is a lot of fucking food that they have now lost to the stampede. They also now don't have the heads of steer to pull their wagons. So left without enough cattle to pull all of the wagons, each handcart was required to take on an additional hundred pounds of flour. Now, keeping in mind, they are pulling these handcarts themselves. So in early September, Richards, who is a missionary returning from Europe, where he'd served as a mission president, passed these emigrant companies. He was on horseback. He was going a lot faster with a smaller crew without any women and children. And he sees this group. Um, Richards and the 12 returning missionaries who accompanied him, traveling in carriages and light wagons, um, pressed on to Utah to obtain help for these immigrants. So somebody knows they're in trouble, but like... They're only on horseback. So, like, there's not as much as they can do. I have a question. So, you said that they lost their cattle. Does that mean the cattle got away and ran away with the herd and, like, lived happily ever after? Or did they get stampeded and die? You know, I think that we're going to go for the sake of our emotions. They moved in with the herd and had a great time. And they were like, I am taking my bra off. And they take off their little harness and they just, like, these tiny little bulls stomp away with these buffalo and they're having a great time and they get married they go to balls because also like if they had died they would have just used that meat right so it must have been that they just got away and were like what the fuck is that buffalo i'm a bull let's hang out i think that's exactly what happened and those from her journal yes exactly and those bulls are now uh the bison in yellowstone Yellowstone. heard who will then be murdered by the yellowstone eruption Anyway, around the oh, same yeah. time, <laughs> the eruption. We're, Got it. We're, we're harking it back. Got it. Around the same time, the companies cut back food rations down to uh, 12 ounces, so less than a pound of flour per person, hoping to stretch their supplies out until they arrive in Utah. To lighten their loads, Allison, the Martin Company cut the luggage allowance down to 10 pounds per person, and this included discarding extra clothing 
and mm. wait for it, extra blankets. Mm. So now these people do not have extra warmth, like warming supplies for the winter that they are about to hit. So after a perilous first month and a half on the trail, both groups reached Fort Laramie, Wyoming. They had expected this to be a place where they could restock provisions that would be instrumental to get them through the backstretch of the journey while they waited for that help that was promised from Utah. Naturally, for this group, there were no supplies available at the fort. So they really were like, F us, I guess. (laughs) It was BYOB, bring your own blankets, and they did not. BYOB, but uh, they didn't bring their blankets because they had they left them behind. Exactly, that's yeah. So they did not. They were like, yeah, it's BYOB. You got to go back like a billion miles and go grab. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, seriously. Jesus, oh, that makes me anxious. Yeah, not. It doesn't get better, Allison. Good. Can't wait. Following this, they cut their rations back even more. So to heart back to when I went to Trek. So when you go to Trek as an LDS person. Or not LDS, I guess you could do it and you don't have to be LDS. But when you go, you have to immerse yourself in the experience. So I had to sew my own pioneer clothes and we did like the full hand cart thing. Our hand carts had metal wheels. So it was a lot easier than these people's. But I have pulled a hand cart. I have done it for many miles. Like I said, I cosplayed as a pioneer for five days. One of the days for the first part of the day, and maybe even longer, they put us on the same equivalent of rations as the pioneers for a day. So for the first half of the day, I was given a little biscuit and that's what I ate for the day. And then we went and pulled hand carts. And then when we got back for the night, I did get to eat a taco bar. So would you, would you sleep in tents? Would you sleep in wagons? So would they pitch like, would they do like real tents or would they pitch like old fashioned? We had real tents. Okay. Okay. So they would cheat on some things. Yeah. So when we were in our camp, we had tents. It was like normal, just like camping and whatever. Like I had a sleeping pad and all this good jazz. But when you were on the trail, we also had to assume pioneer identities. So like I was given a name of a pioneer person who had actually done a trek and I was like in, you make like fake families. So, but they're like based off of real pioneer families. So I was in a family. I had a mom and pa and I was the oldest daughter, a little bit typecast if you ask me, whatever. Sure. But yeah, so you really, you get fully immersed in it, but 12 ounces of flour to eat while also traveling like 12 miles a day, pulling 250 plus pound of hand carts. Because again, they don't have a bunch of cattle to pull these hand carts for them. So they're pulling them themselves. So Many of the pioneers discarded more clothing and blankets in an effort to lighten their loads to go faster at Fort Laramie as well. And this would prove absolutely detrimental down the line when the snow began to come in earnest. Meanwhile, on October 4th, the missionary party that had passed the group previously made it to Salt Lake. Upon hearing the trouble these groups were in, Brigham Young called upon the membership to provide wagons, mules, supplies, and teamsters to set off on an immediate rescue mission. On October 7th, the first rescue party left Salt Lake City with 16 wagon loads of food and supplies pulled by four mule teams with 27 young men serving as teamsters and rescuers. Throughout October, more wagon trains were assembled, and by the end of the month, 250 relief wagons were sent. By this point, both companies were running very low on food and running into a bout of cold temperatures and the Wyoming wind. Allison, when was the last time you drove across Wyoming? It's been a few years. 
Okay. Hated it. But do you remember how awful it was? Yes. Okay. We've, we've, so, I've had bad experiences in Wyoming with you in particular. When I had yes. to go and pick you and your ex's ass up after y'all hit a deer. It was awful. When, Wyoming is flat and windy and there's nothing to look at. And there's no protection really until you get to the western side of the state. So they mm-hmm. are just like getting lit, quite literally blown away by this Wyoming wind. And you know, when you're driving through Wyoming, they have kind of like those along the freeways, they have essentially slanted fences all along the sides of the freeways. Yes, but they're for snow. So it will stop snow from blowing across the freeway when it gets really bad. So that's also what they're dealing with is like sideways snow. Ew, on October and hand carts. I literally oh yeah, in hand carts without extra changes of clothes or blankets. So mm. on October 19th, a blizzard strikes the region and completely stops the two companies and the relief parties. Um, the Willie Company, which is a little bit ahead of the Martin Company, was located at the Sweetwater River, which is one of the last river crossings you have to do before you drop down into Utah. They were approaching the Continental Divide while the Martin Company was about 110 miles behind them nearing their final crossing of the North Platte River near what's now present-day Casper, Wyoming. A a scouting group that went ahead of the rescue parties stopped by the Willie Company and gave them small rations before journeying on to hunt down the Martin Party that was, like I said, 110 miles behind. Shortly after the Martin Company completed the final crossing of the Platte River, another blizzard hit so these guys are already sopping wet and then more snow shows up now remember lest you forgot many of the people had left their only extra clothes and blankets behind at the fort many of their blankets that hadn't been left behind were having to be used to bury the dead because they didn't have any other proper ways to wrap their bodies before burying them and they didn't want wildlife to disrupt their bodies because of the lack of warmth in combination with the river crossing many many members of the company suffer from hypothermia or frostbite so we'll get into this a little bit later but i have done the river crossing that they will reference here shortly so i've forged a river with a handcart and it is not easy chief and i did it in july so i cannot imagine doing it while there was ice in the river and all this stuff and again keep in mind primarily women, children, and elderly people are doing this. So anyway, in an effort to avoid more people dying, they set up camp at a place called Red Bluffs to wait out the snow. Meanwhile, the original scouting party continued eastward until it found a small vacant fort at what's called Devil's Gate, where they had been instructed to wait for the rest of the rescue party if they had not found the Martin Company. When the main rescue party rejoined them, another scouting party consisting of uh, missionaries named Joseph Young, Abel Gar, and Daniel Webster Jones were sent forward because they were like, we don't know where they are, so we can't help them. We're not going to force our teams to go find them. Basically, where the F are they? Are, Are they all dead? The Martin Company remained in their camp at Red Bluffs for nine days after this river crossing that was so detrimental until these three scouts finally arrived on October 28th. This is now two months after they've left. So they are into the thick of it and they have another month to go before they will arrive in the Salt Lake Valley. In those nine days of the 900 person company, 56 people of the company died while they were waiting for these scouts. 
So when the scouts finally find that found them, they provided rations, including buffalo meat, and encouraged everyone to keep going. The meat, like the buffalo meat, likely saved many lives because it was so much more nutrition than nutritious than the other provisions they'd been eating. Because they're basically living off of flour, and that's it. Like there's no vegetables or no nothing. Like they'd run out of meat long ago. So this meat was like a boon to them. The rescuers also performed many religious blessings and helped with life-saving amputation amputations to stop the progression of frostbite and gangrene. Three days later, the main rescue party finally met the Martin company and helped them on to Devil's Gate. Patience recalls the first rescuers meeting her company saying, and I quote, Sister Marianne was at her fire cooking something. I don't know what she had to cook, but I'm sure she had very little. We looked around towards the mountains and she called out, oh, Patience, there are some Californians coming. As they got nearer to us, I told her, no, they are not Californians. It is Brother Joseph A. Young from the Valley. He was accompanied by Brother Hanks or Brother James Ferguson. I cannot say which. The brethren saw our fire and came over to us with their pack animal brother young asked how many are dead and how many are alive i told him i could not tell with tears streaming down his face he asked where is your captain's tent he called for the bugler to call everyone out of their tents he then told captain edward martin to give us all one pound of flour each if he had enough and to and said to kill any cattle and give us one pound of beef each he said there were plenty of provisions and clothing coming for us on the road but that tomorrow morning we must move from where we were he said we had 25 miles to travel and then we would have plenty of provisions and lots of good brethren to help us they had come with good teams and good covered wagons so the sick could ride in then he said that he would have to leave us he would have liked to travel with us the next morning but we must cheer up and god would bless us and give us strength he said we have made the trail for you to follow then he bid us goodbye these brethren still had seven more miles to the platte river where the wagon company was still camped they were in great distress because of their their teams had given out there were so many of them and their provisions were running very short After the brethren had left us, we felt quite encouraged. We got our flour and beef before night came on and we were all busy cooking. We thank God and the kind brothers that had come to help us in our great distress and misery. We had been suffering greatly with cold and hunger, end quote. Could you imagine like starving and like seeing these men come over the ridge and like knowing? I would think I had died and gone to heaven. No, quite literally, quite literally. The only time I'd ever um, feel that way seeing men, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, yeah basically. <laughs> um, so naturally, because this company can't catch a fucking break, more severe weather forced the Martin Company to halt for another five days. The company moved into what is now called Martin's Cove, a few miles west of Devil's Gate. It's much more protected from the elements and provided a safe haven for the time they were there. So I have been to Martin's Cove. When I went, it was under a spiritual guise, but even as like, I think about it, I get like a little bit misty. The church has it dedicated in the same way that they dedicate, they dedicate temples. It's like a very, very sacred place in nature to the members. Um, And I, when we went on trek, that's one of the things they have you go do is you go and you sit in Martin's Cove. Um, There's like a rock formation and, and stuff. And it is the the energy there is indescribable there there's no other way to describe it other than like it's just there there is an energy like it is very peaceful and it is like a haven but it's also you can tell that it was a haven from like some very very dark times like the whole the whole place has such an interesting energy and it was really really it was a very interesting experience to go and sit and contemplate and like really think about like the trials that 
happened there because a lot of people died in Martin's Cove. But it was really, it was quite, quite the experience. Wow. Yeah. Um, you actually got misty-eyed. I did. I did. I, I mean, the thing is, is like the God stuff and, and the high, like the Mormon stuff aside, like these people were trekking to what they thought was a better life. It's, it's any immigration story. Like, and yeah. when you think about it in the context of like our lens now, and you think about the people trying to escape countries that are persecuting them and, or yeah. can't provide for them anymore. And you just think about like places like us, like we have so much opulence here. And I just think about the, the quote unquote modern day pioneers and the, the shit that they're going through mm-hmm. and that we just like, aren't sending our version of 250 rescue wagons out to them to help them. Like, it's just anyway. Okay. So they're in Martin Cove. They're hunkering down. They know that there's rescue coming, but they haven't gotten to the rescue yet. So after these five days of hunkering down from the storm, the group had no choice but to continue on. Patience recalls not wanting to get up that morning and the lethargy that had struck her and her sisters. Her mother got up, and this is actually a very famous Mormon story. Um, Patience's mother got up and danced in front of her daughters until they got up. It's like a very classic Relief Society lesson story of, of finding cheer even in the hardest of places that's yes. very touching I can't that's um, very touching. she did that so finally on November 18th the backup relief party of 77 teams met the Martin company with the supplies so they could continue on the journey without this rescue effort there's absolutely no question that the entire group would have perished at one point the journey did get a bit easier for the group after the relief party showed up between the food the wag and the wagons the group was able to lay down the majority of the hand carts making the walk much easier Patience recalls a couple of other miraculous moments that helped encourage her and her family on the journey. She writes, and I quote, sometime in the afternoon, a strange man appeared to me as we were resting. As we got to the top of the hill, he came and looked in my face. He said, are you patients? And I said, yes. He said, I thought it was you. Travel on. There's help for you. You will come to a good place where there is plenty. With this, he was gone, disappeared. I looked, but never saw where he went. This seemed very strange to me. I took this as someone sent to encourage us and give us strength, end quote. So was it like a spirit or a person? Was I it- think that it was, it was, it's led to be that it was an angel of some sort. Okay. So the group did have to endure a few more cross river crossings, most notably the Sweetwater crossing. There is a very, very famous story in the kind of lore of the LDS church about the Sweetwater crossing where three men, and we'll get into this in a moment, stood in the water, the freezing water all day and helped carry people across the water. When you go to the Sweetwater River, which I've done on the same trek, and this is where I have done the handcart forging of a river, there are three bronze statues placed in the in and around the river representing these three men that sacrificed their bodily health to help these women and children across. Anywho, Patience recalls the Sweetwater Crossing Day, saying, we traveled on for a few more miles before we came to the Sweetwater River. There we had to cross. We thought we would have to wade in the water because the cattle had been crossed with the wagons and tents and what little flour we had and had broken the ice. So we could not go over on the ice. But there were three brave men in the winter packing the women and children over on their backs. Their names were William Kimball, Ephraim Hanks, and I think the other was James Ferguson. Those poor brethren were in the water nearly all day. We wanted to thank them, but they would not listen. 
My dear mother blessed them for their kindness. She said, God bless you for taking me over this water in such an awful rough way. Oh, damn that, they said. I don't want any of that. You are welcome. We have come to help you. Mother turned to me saying, what do you think of that man? He is a rough fellow. (laughs) I told her that his brother, William Kimball, I am told that they are all good men, but I dare say that they are all rough men in their manners. But we found that they all had kind, good hearts. This poor brother Kimball stayed so long in the water that he had to be taken out and packed to camp. It was a long time before he recovered. After this and throughout his life, he was always afflicted with rheumatism, end quote. Ultimately, the 104 wagons carrying the Martin Company arrived in Salt Lake City on November 30th, 1856. They estimated that at least 145 members of the company died during the journey. Many of the survivors had fingers, toes, or limbs amputated due to severe frostbite. The surviving members spent the winter living in the homes of Utah families and went on to settle all across Utah. Patience ends her account of the journey saying, and I quote, I will now conclude my hard journey across the plains by handcart by saying that we lived through this terrible journey and arrived in Salt Lake City Sunday at noon on the 30th day of November, 1856, end quote. So it was just like not good all the way around. And the thing that's so frustrating about this is like, yes, it is a true story of like the human spirit and the human experience. However, it was completely and utterly avoidable the amount of death, the amount of monetary loss, all because the thing is like a lot of the men died trying to do too much pulling these wagons. And so then when they got to the Utah Valley, who, who was going to provide for these women in a traditionally patriarchal society? Mm-hmm. So anyway, that is patient loader archers version of events of the Martin Handcart tragedy. Wow, Jess, that was horrifying me i i'm I'm currently sitting here under my heated blanket on my couch with a cider and a beer sweater uh sipping away and enjoying the warmth in my literal star wars onesie and i am listening to the stories of people uh waiting in water freezing to death and dying and going wow that sucks sip cider wow that sounds bad sip cider so i'm very grateful i don't live back in the 1800s at all here's the thing you could live in the 1800s just maybe not in the undeveloped wyoming wilderness also maybe not gay oh yeah that's a fair point you could have been a spinster with your close friend Sure. Sure, sure, sure. I just would have moved in with my close friend or I just would have been a witch in the woods that throws poo at people. One or the other. I'm not quite sure. (laughs) There's no in between. All right. Let me get to my thing, Jess. Ow. I would like to tell you about the Sager orphans, if you wouldn't mind. I would would love to hear about it. (sighs) Okay. So my references for this are... Across the Plains in 1844 by Catherine Sager. I listened to the free audiobook on YouTube. She is the one narrating basically all of this, all, all of the firsthand accounts from this story. So you hear mostly through her perspective. Um, an article by Legends of America called The Sager Orphans on the Oregon Trail and The True Story of the Sager Family by Sarah Kirk. So with that being said... In April of 1844, Henry and Naomi Sager, along with their six children, decided to partake in the fun that was westward expansion. They joined a wagon trade led by Captain William Shaw as a pastor of their town in Missouri, and they headed out along the Oregon Trail in search of a better life. 
just you know your classic fun family activities right so i mean in a way sorry to interrupt so early on no please please do in a way did you not pack up your subaru cross track and also fled for western expansion in oregon <laughs> in hopes of a better life <laughs> hopes of a better life yes i absolutely did but i didn't have my wife and six children with me <laughs> and i guess what i didn't find a better life i found a much worse one and i'm coming back like in a minute <laughs> literally literally your version of the pioneers doing a big fat u-turn back to iowa <laughs> just but with my u-haul trailer and my air-conditioned vehicle <laughs> anyway katherine sager was one of the six children and described her father as being a restless man. So Henry had already moved the family three times before 1844. They started in Virginia before moving to Ohio and then to Indiana before settling in St. Joseph's, Missouri on a farm. And again, this is 1844 and they're pioneers. They're not just throwing everybody up into a van and like moving in a few hours. It's like, all right, kids, a few of you might die but that is a risk I'm willing to take. Let's go to another state and just see what's going on. You know what I mean? Like it was a big fucking deal and it was just a total Lord Farquaad of the time. I'm telling you. All right. So while on St. Joseph's, Missouri on the farm where they had settled for the third time in March of 1844, Henry, the father joined a group of pioneers who called themselves the independent colony. One month later, the family, including their six children, John, age 14, Francis, age 12, Catherine, 9, Elizabeth, 7, Matilda, 5, and Louisa, 3, started out on the 2,000-mile-long journey on the Oregon Trail. The wagon train included... Christ. Uh-huh. The wagon train included 300 people in 72 covered wagons. Henry's wife, Naomi, was reluctant at first... And Jess, that might have partially been due to the fact that she was literally seven months pregnant with their seventh child. Their seventh child, she was seven months pregnant. And he was like, honey, I think this is a great time in 1844 to just move. Men really have the audacity. And he absolutely did, but he fucking convinced her and she was... (sighs) Anyway, the entire rest of this story could have been prevented if he had just fucking listened to her, but we're not going to get into that right now. So at the start, everybody, including, well, actually probably excluding the seven-month pregnant Naomi, was enjoying the journey. The children ran laughing and playing, and the adults would sing and play musical instruments around the campfire every night. Catherine Sager, the third oldest, later said, quote, the first encampments were a great pleasure to us children. We were five girls and two boys, ranging from the baby girl to be born on the way to the oldest boy, hardly old enough to be of any help. So with that being said, after five weeks on the trail, on May 30th, 1844, Naomi gave birth to their seventh child, Henrietta, in what is present-day Kansas. So basically, everybody, especially the kids, were having the best time ever, right? But guess what? That didn't last. (laughs) So in early July, while crossing the banks of Nebraska's Platte River, Henry lost control of the oxen and the wagon overturned in the shallow water with Naomi, the mom, still inside. She was severely injured, but she did survive. And because there's quite literally nothing else to do, the pioneers were like, cool, so can we just like keep going, I guess? And in late July, they were almost to the Rocky Mountains. 
soon after starting their journey through the Rockies on <laughs> just um you're gonna hate this part it's not a plane crash but you're not gonna like it so Soon after starting their journey through the Rockies on August 1st, a little nine-year-old Catherine, the narrator of our story, tried to jump out of the wagon while it was in motion. The children had grown very accustomed to doing this, and unfortunately this time she caught her dress on an axe handle and she was thrown under the moving wagon. Her left leg was crushed and broken in several places, and this is the quote you're going to love the most, ready? I got thrown under the wagon wheel, which passed over and badly crushed my limb before father could stop the team. He picked me up and saw the extent of the injury when the injured limb hung dangling in the air. (laughs) In a broken voice, he exclaimed, my dear child, your leg is broken all to pieces. Ma'am. Horrible thing you've ever heard. Hate that so much. Yeah. So the news of the injury spread along the train and a halt was called and a doctor was found and the limb was set. Normally, an injury like that would have been fatal had there not been a doctor there. And I mean, I don't know how you exactly set a crushed limb. A broken limb, yes, but a crushed limb, it's crushed. <laughs> That's all I got to say. Your bones literally like, all right, we vibe. Yeah, your bones, your bones like, I'm liquid now. What's up? So basically, Catherine our heroine was just confined to the wagon for the rest of the journey. And I also like to picture at this point, they just threw her into an entire barrel of whiskey because that was their only choice in medicine back then. And they were like, all right, little one, you're tiny enough that you can just swim around in this, just drink up and try to not scream loud because it bothers us. That being said, during the descent into the Green River Valley, some of the travelers, including Henry Sager, the father, fell ill because of an outbreak of, Jess, can you guess? dysentery no i knew you're gonna say that it was camp fever gangrene nope it was camp fever i knew you're gonna say dysentery i'm surprised you didn't roast me for that anyway okay listen we're gonna side break for just a second allison has fucking had dysentery like oregon trail style Mm -hmm. you have died of dysentery she did it so like this family allison allison also has firsthand experience of some oregon trail ailments like dysentery and it was absolutely the worst and I don't recommend it and I would have died of dysentery had I not gotten professional medical attention I was in Peru at the time which is why I got it and I was a little too adventurous with what I ate so 10 out of 10 would not recommend I was in the hospital for a week it was all it's all funny now but at the time I actually thought I was gonna die And I didn't know it was dysentery until I got back. And I basically was like, doctor, you cannot tell anybody this. This is the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Our good friend Stevie got me a shirt when I got back that said, you have died of dysentery with a little graphic of the Oregon Trail game. And I just really appreciate it when my friends get me. So thank you for that, Stevie. Anyway, so it wasn't dysentery, but I'm sure they all had it. It was actually camp fever, which was also known as typhus. And this illness spreads in overcrowded populations with inadequate sanitary standards. After crossing the Green River, two women and a child in the caravan had already died of the fever, and Henry was very ill. So he knew that death was imminent, and he ended up weeping and begging Captain Shaw to take care of his young family. Nine-year-old Catherine recalls her father crying and looking at her, laying with her broken leg, saying, poor child, what will become of you? That night, he died, and the next day, he was buried on the banks of the river in an improvised coffin made from tree trunks, and the wagon train traveled on. 
The Sagers hired a young man to drive the oxen for them. On one evening at Fort Bridger, Wyoming, the new driver told Naomi, the mother, he would go hunt for game if she would give him her dead husband's rifle. He took the gun and was never seen again, having joined another wagon train ahead of them where he had a sweetheart. So they would have literally been fucked if not for the doctor, the same one who had set Catherine's leg, if he hadn't stepped in and driven the wagon for them. So unfortunately, Naomi, the mother, had become a, quote, lunatic after her husband's death. She was too sick with grief to be able to cope, and she soon contracted camp fever and became delirious. During this time, the baby Henrietta was cared for by the other woman of the train. Those same women took care of Naomi Sager, washed the dust off her face, and made her as comfortable as possible. The road they traveled the day Naomi died was a rough one, and she moaned and cried all the way. Catherine Sager said of her mother, quote, Traveling in this condition over a road clouded with dust, she suffered intensely. She talked of her husband, addressing him as though present, beseeching him in piteous tones to relieve her sufferings until, at last, she became unconscious. Her last words were, Oh, Henry, if you only knew how we have suffered. End quote. That night, she died near Idaho Falls, Idaho, and was buried wrapped in a bedsheet. John, the oldest child, age 14, carved the words Naomi Carney Sager, age 37, out on a wooden headboard and thus marked the shallow grave. The seven Sager children, the youngest being three months old and the oldest 14 years, were left orphaned. So shortly before her death, Naomi requested Captain Shaw and the doctor to escort the children to Marcus Whitman, a Protestant missionary in the Walla Walla Valley of what is now southeastern Washington. Along the way, the whole wagon train adopted the children and helped take care of them. The Captain Shaw had primary responsibility, even dividing his last loaf of bread to feed the children. Stopping at Snake River, Captain Shaw literally sawed their wagon in half and converted it into a cart because the oxen were wearing out. I don't know how you do this. It would have been the worst time. I've tried to saw wood with a modern day handsaw and it sucked, let alone sawing an entire wagon in 1855. I just simply, I'm a city girl, you know, I can't, (laughs) I couldn't do this shit, man. So he saw, he literally sawed their wagon in half and Into this wagon, they loaded what was necessary and left everything else behind. On the last day of September, the wagon train arrived at Grand Ronde, Oregon. There, one of the younger girls caught her dress on fire and would have burned to death if the doctor hadn't saved her. Did none of these children learn, like, don't jump out of wagons or don't, like, step in fire? Just wait. Just, just wait. Okay. So by now it was almost winter and things were getting worse. The cattle were dying and just being left along the trail. They were making only a few miles every day. And one night Captain Shaw heard a ch- <laughs> Jess, this is your answer. One night Captain Shaw heard a child crying and found one of the younger Sager girls had gotten out of the wagon and was literally dying in the freezing air. Like, these kids were constantly just trying to kill themselves on accident. And these, like, these adults on this trail were just, like, I swear to God, just running all over the place like ants trying to, like, make sure that these seven children weren't killing themselves in some way. And if this guy had just, like, stayed in Missouri on their little homestead, it would have been fine. If he wasn't, like, let's move for a fourth time, you know? Anyway, not to victim blame here because, you know, I think he realized probably at the time he was dying that... He might have made a mistake, but hey, what do I know? 
On October 17th, Captain Shaw ran ahead because they were getting, they were finally getting close enough to this Whitman mission. They were like, he was like, okay, I'm going to run ahead and arrange for the children to stay with the Whitmans. And I hope to God they say yes, because we don't know what we'll do if they don't. (laughs) So he brought them to their mission and because they had said yes. So the Whitmans came out of their home to greet the children. And what they saw was, quote, a scene for an artist to describe, end quote. The first thing they noticed were the tired, skinny oxen laying near the cart. Sitting in the front end of the cart was John, the 14-year-old, weeping heavily. On the opposite side stood Francis, the second oldest, leaning on the cart, head resting on his arms, sobbing loudly. On the near side, the little girls were huddled together, bareheaded and barefooted, looking at the boys, and then at the house, and then at the Whitmans with scared eyes. Catherine saw Narcissa Whitman and said she was the prettiest woman any of them had ever seen. She was a, quote, plump with fair complexion, auburn hair, and large gray eyes, end quote. And then in my head, I was like, so basically her beauty was beyond compare with flaming locks of auburn hair with iris skin and large gray eyes. She was like Dolly Parton's knockoff version of Jolene. Good. Yes, exactly. Okay. So Narcissa spoke kindly to the orphans as she approached them, but they were so frightened. They ran behind the cart and peeped around at her shyly. But eventually they did follow her inside, Catherine, I'm assuming, with an enormous limp. And finally, their six-month-long Oregon Trail nightmare was over. So let me tell you a little bit about the Whitman's Girl Fast, okay? Dr. Marcus Whitman was a physician and a Protestant missionary. In 1836, he and his wife Narcissa joined a caravan of fur traders and traveled west, establishing several missions as well as their own settlement in Washington. Also, fun fact, Narcissa and another woman in the caravan would become the first white women to cross the continent. So. That's so interesting. Oh, my gosh. she's, she's, She's pretty badass. And so the Whitman settlement was located in the territory of both the Nez Perce and the Cayuse Native American tribes in Washington. At first, the tribes were kind of wary of the Whitmans, naturally, uh, but relations between the Whitmans and the Cayuse improved greatly when Dr. Whitman attempted to learn their language. He was insistent, of course, because he learned their language that the Cayuse people should learn the, quote, white man's way of living. So they joined together and started a little community, and Dr. Whitman farmed and provided medical care while Narcissa, his wife, set up a school for the Native American children. Differences in the culture led to growing tensions between the Native KU's people and the Whitmans, but they did manage to coexist rather peacefully in the beginning. And shortly after they settled in 1837, the Whitmans lost their two-year-old daughter after she fell in the river and drowned. In an attempt to regain some sense of family, Narcissa began taking care of orphan children. So when Captain Shaw showed up at their home in early October, 1844, and was like, I have seven starving, traumatized orphans all under the age of 14. The Whitmans were like, hell yes, sign us the fuck up. And I, it was like, she was like, bring them here. I love Eugene, Oregon. I, it's not, not your my car, car, is it? No, no, I don't think so. I don't know how to make it stop. <laughs> there it is. So she saw the seven, she heard, she heard about these seven starving traumatized orphans and was like, what's up? I'm here for it. And they found out that it was Naomi Sager's, the mother's dying wish that her children stay together. 
And in July 1845, Marcus and Narcissa Whitman obtained a court order giving them legal custody of all seven children. At first, the Sager children were shy, but soon warmed to the love and compassion of the Whitmans and began calling them father and mother. Regardless of the hard work and chores they did on the farm, life was actually quite pleasant at the Whitman mission. The orphans were able to attend school with the Native American children and had many friends their age to play with. Mrs. Whitman would sing to the children and comfort them, and she was actually described as the perfect mother, and her and her husband made sure the children remembered their biological parents. They spoke very highly of Henry and Naomi Sager, and very kindly and with much respect, going as far as changing the baby Henrietta's middle name to Naomi in honor of her birth mother. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. So all in all, the children and the Whitmans lived happily ever after. The end. Actually, I'm just kidding. It actually gets like 10 times worse. Hi there, editing Allison here. This is just a quick PSA to those sensitive souls like my mother out there who would probably like to continue believing that this family lived happily ever after. This is your chance to tune out and come join us next week because they absolutely do not live happily ever after and it gets really bad. So all my sensitive souls will see you next week. Everybody else is fucked up as me and Jess. What's up? Can't wait. Over the next three years, the number of wagon trains and pioneers increased significantly because the Whitman mission was a popular stop along the Oregon Trail. And of course, white people did what they did best and ruined it for everybody else. So the settlers brought along diseases to which the native tribes had no immunity. In the cold and damp weather, of November 1847, the measles epidemic reached its peak and half the Cayuse tribe died, including almost all of the children. And to take advantage of this, an asshole from the East named Joe Lewis was staying with the Whitmans for the winter. He hoped to create a situation in which he could ransack the Whitman mission. So he spread the rumor among the local Cayuse tribe that Dr. Whitman, who was attempting to treat the sick natives during the epidemic, was actually, in fact, deliberately poisoning them to steal their land. And on November 29th, 1847, Joe Lewis got his wish and violence erupted. The Cayuse tribe attacked the Whitman mission to avenge their dead. So just a quick thing. What I gathered is that the Whitman mission is basically kind of a small community of people. Obviously, it has all the native tribes and a bunch of different. They, I know they had like a schoolhouse. They had a blacksmith shop, uh, their own home. They had a mill. Like it was, it was a tiny community of people that was starting to grow and thrive. And it's a community of white settlers mixed with the natives. Okay. So that's kind of what I gathered from all this. And Joe Lewis came in and, you know, ruined everything. And so on this day, November 29th, 1847, in the home, the children were bathing and Catherine, who is now 13 years old, witnesses what will soon be known as the infamous Whitman Massacre. I will say as a warning that I'm going to read nearly word for word what Catherine wrote. I deleted some sentences and replaced a few outdated words with words we understand so the story flows a little bit better. Uh, but other than that, this is a direct quote from her writings. Catherine mentions many random people by name. These were mostly other white travelers staying and working with the Whitmans at the time. And for clarity, Mrs. Whitman is mother and Dr. Whitman is father. But most importantly, I want to say before I read this, that Catherine does not speak highly of the natives and refers to them in offensive and derogatory ways. These terms are not appropriate today and should not be used when describing Native Americans. Also, this is very upsetting. So you've been warned. Great. Quote, I can see it all now. 
The fatal 29th of November dawned a cold and foggy morning. It would seem as though the sun was afraid to look upon the bloody deed the day was to bring forth, and that nature was weeping over the wickedness of man. Mrs. Whitman had gone to the pantry for milk for one of the children. The kitchen was full of Indians, and their boisterous manner alarmed her. She fled to the sitting room, bolting the door in the face of the savages who tried to pass in. She had not yet taken her hand from the lock when the Indians rapped on the door and asked for the doctor. Dr. Whitman told his wife to bolt the door after him. So she did. Listening for a moment, she seemed to be reassured, crossed the room, and took up the youngest child in her arms and sat down. She had scarcely sat down when we were all startled by an explosion that seemed to shake the house. The women sprang to their feet and stood with white faces and distended eyes. The children rushed outdoors, some of them without clothes, as we were all taking a bath. Mrs. Whitman called us back and told Mrs. Osborne to go to her room and lock the door, at the same time telling us to put on our clothes. All of this happened much quicker than I can write it. Mrs. Whitman then began to walk the floor, wringing her hands, saying, Oh, the Indians, the Indians, they killed my husband and I am a widow. She repeated this many times. At this moment, Marianne, who was in the kitchen, rushed around the house and came in a door that was not locked. Her face was deathly white. We gathered around her and inquired if father was dead. She replied, yes. Just then, a man came in the same door with his arm broken. He said, Mrs. Whitman, the Indians are killing us all. This roused her to action. She unlocked the door and went into the kitchen. As she did, several women with their small children rushed in. Mrs. Whitman was trying to drag her husband in, and one of the women went to her aid. He was fatally wounded, but conscious. The blood was streaming from a gunshot wound in his throat. Kneeling over him, she implored him to speak to her. To all her questions, he whispered, yes or no. Mrs. Whitman would often step to the door and look out through the window to see what was going on outside. The roar of guns showed us that the bloodthirsty fiends were not yet satisfied. Looking out, we saw Mr. Rogers running towards the house, hotly pursued by Indians. He sprang against the door, breaking out two panes of glass. Mrs. Whitman opened the door, let him in, and closed it in the face of his pursuers, who, with a yell, turned to seek other victims. Mr. Rogers was shot through the wrist and tomahawked on the head. Seeing Dr. Whitman, father, lying upon the floor, he asked if the doctor was dead, to which he replied, no. The school teacher, Mr. Sanders, heard the report of the guns in the kitchen and ran down to see what happened. Mrs. Whitman saw him and motioned for him to go back. He did so and had reached the stairs leading to the schoolroom when he was seized by a savage who had a large butcher knife. Mr. Sanders struggled and was about to get away when another burly savage came to the aid of the first. Standing by Mrs. Whitman's side, I watched the horrid strife until, sickened, I turned away. Just then, a bullet came through the window, piercing Mrs. Whitman's shoulder. Clasping her hands to the wound, she shrieked with pain and then fell to the floor. I ran to her and tried to raise her up. She said, child, you cannot help me save yourself. We all crowded around her and began to weep. She commenced praying for us, saying, Lord, save these little ones. Mr. Rogers pushed us to the stairway. I was filled with agony at the idea of leaving the children and refused to go. So taking up one of the children, he handed her to me. I passed her to someone else, turned and took another, and then the third and ran up myself. Mr. Rogers then helped my mother to her feet and brought her upstairs and laid her on the bed. The crashing of doors informed us that the work of death was accomplished and our time had come. We heard footsteps in the room below, and a voice at the bottom of the stairway called to Mr. Rogers. 
It was an Indian who said he would save them if they came down. They were going to burn the house down and we must leave, but they would first take Mrs. Whitman away and then come back for us. When they reached the room below, Mother was laid upon a couch and carried out into the yard by Mr. Rogers and the trader Joe Lewis. Having reached the yard, Joe dropped his under the couch and a volley of bullets laid Mr. Rogers, Mother, and my brother Francis bleeding and dying on the ground. My oldest brother John was shot at the same time father was in the kitchen. The chief made a speech in favor of sparing the women and children, and they all became prisoners. Ten ghastly, bleeding corpses lay in and around the house. Night came and put an end to the carnival of blood. End quote. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Really paints a picture for you, huh? Like, yeah, yeah, but in total, the massacre ended with the death of 14 people, including Marcus Whitman, Narcissa Whitman, and the two oldest sacred children, John 17 and Francis 15. Another 54 women and children were captured and held for ransom. Catherine comforted the sick and starving children as best she could, even braving the wrath of her captors to leave the house and get water for the children. To do this, she had to pass the bloody bodies of her father and two brothers. When she finally got back to the room with the water, she fainted. So six days after the attack on December 5th, Catherine's sister, six-year-old Louisa Sager, succumbed to measles and passed away in Catherine's arms. Several other prisoners died in captivity. Most of the men were murdered by the captors, but most others died from disease, just like Louisa Sager did. However, thankfully, some residents were able to escape during the massacre and sent for help. One month after the killings, on December 29, 1847, Peter Skeen Ogden from the Hudson Bay Company arranged an exchange of 62 blankets, 63 cotton shirts, 12 rifles, 600 loads of ammunition, 7 pounds of tobacco, and 12 flints for the return of the 49 surviving prisoners and a partridge in a pear tree. The survivors were then brought to Fort Vancouver in Vancouver, Washington, so that was all finally over. So for just a quick regroup here, we are down to four surviving Sager children. Catherine is 13, Elizabeth is 10, Matilda's eight, and Henrietta, who was the baby born on the trail, was now three. The four remaining Sager girls were then split up and sent to different families. In October 1851, at the age of 17, Catherine married Clark Pringle, a Methodist minister, at which time Elizabeth and Henrietta went to live with them on their 640-acre farm near Salem, Oregon. There, Catherine raised eight children. So I, I do get some peace knowing that uh, two of the three other of Catherine's sisters went and lived with her on her and her husband's farm for a while, you know. Yeah, it, well, at least there's like some together. respite, you know. Yeah, um, it doesn't last long, so enjoy that while you can, because uh, there's more. Don't yeah, don't get your hopes up. So Henrietta, the youngest child, was placed first with a family where she remained for three years before joining her older sisters at Catherine's farm. She then left to join her uncle Solomon Sager's traveling troupe of entertainers. Uh, Henrietta was married twice, both unhappily, and died at the young age of 26 after being mistakenly shot and killed by an outlaw who was aiming for her husband. Great. Awesome. Love that so much. Yeah. (laughs) So what actually 
is kind of awesome is that in 1897, more than 3,000 visitors attended the 50th anniversary commemoration of the massacre on the mission grounds. Invited as guests of honor were some of the survivors, including Catherine, Elizabeth, and Matilda Sager, the last three surviving Sager orphans. A photo was taken of the sisters, now old women, posing together, which you can actually find online. The Whitman Mission is now a historical site, which you can visit, which also includes a cemetery those killed in the attack were buried in called the Great Grave. (sighs) Let's wrap up with the sisters all right so elizabeth married in 1855 and had nine children she died july 19th 1925 at the age of 88 matilda had eight children and was married three times because her husbands kept dying and she spent her later life with a daughter in california where she died on april 13th 1928 at the age of 89 she actually outlived everybody else oh my gosh Mm -hmm. crazy that's the year my great grandma was born it's crazy how these really aren't that far from our own lives no Anyway, about 10 years after her arrival in Oregon, Catherine wrote an account of the Sager family's journey west called Across the Plains in 1844. This book recounts her family's journey along the Oregon Trail, her time spent with the Whitmans, and the book ends with a massacre and being rescued and brought to Fort Vancouver. She hoped to earn enough money from this book to set up an orphanage in memory of Narcissa Whitman, but she never found a publisher. She died on August 10th, 1910, at the age of 75. Her children and grandchildren saved her manuscript without modification, and today it is regarded as one of the most authentic accounts of American westward migration. And that is the story of the Sager orphans and the Whitman massacre. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. I had never heard that before. No, me neither. And a book that she came out with, you can actually find, uh, it's published now, obviously. You can find it online. You can order it. It's pretty short, or you can listen to it in a little over an hour. Uh, the audiobook is actually on YouTube for free. That's where I listen to it. And it's a pretty good listen. It had me on the edge of my seat for a lot of it and made me very grateful for the life I have today. So anyway, I just have a lot of respect for these women and I mean, well, these children, you know, and what they went through and the women that lived to older age, you know, Elizabeth, Matilda and Catherine had just been through so much. Anyway, I would you should look up the picture of the Sager sisters at the Whitman Memorial because it's you can just see in their eyes. They're just like you can see that they lived a thousand lifetimes. Oh, my gosh. I mean, look at them. Don't they look like just fucking done? Oh, yeah. I mean, do we blame them? No, absolutely not. Like, Catherine is the one on the bottom left. Fair fair enough. Yeah, exactly. Look at her eyes. Like, if she were my mother, I would be absolutely terrified of her. Oh, terrified. Well, Jess, I would say that this was a successful episode. And I'm excited because next episode, we will be talking about random stories that we are choosing to bring to each other. It's a surprise. Mm-hmm. I've had mine picked out since before we started this podcast. So if you have gotten this far into our reminiscings of Pioneer Days, thank you so much for listening. We've really had a lot of support as we've started this. I think this will be technically our fifth full episode by the time it comes out. And we are just so grateful to everybody for loving the podcast as much as we do and for all your kind messages and all your kind words. If you would like to follow us on Instagram, you can follow us at Salt Lime Storytime on Instagram or on Facebook. If you have any theme suggestions, DM us. We'd love to hear it. Mm-hmm. And if you have any crazy pioneer stories, 
that you would like to share, also DM us. And we'll be back next week with another three, two, one shots. And the week after that will be surprises. In natural fashion, Allison has hers picked out. And I have no clue what I'm going to do. So if you want to DM me on what I should do, please do. Thank you to my dad, Corey, for jumping on the pod. Thank you, thank you Allison, for listening to Mormon history. And thank you, South Park, for teaching Allison mm. everything she needs to know about Mormon history. More like just putting into words I understand. Yes. <laughs> fair <laughs> I enough. I already learned it, but it just made sense to me then. Yes. Fair enough. Well. All right, guys. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye.